People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Our guest today is Krista Tippett, the creator and host of the highly acclaimed public radio program and podcast On Being, which features conversations with theologians, scientists, and artists about spirituality, community, creativity, and how we can build a more just and civil society. In 2018, Krista Tippett founded the On Being Project, which is both a media and public life initiative, where she is also the curator of the Civil Conversations Project. Krista Tippett is a Peabody Award-winning broadcaster, a New York Times best-selling author, and a National Humanities Medal recipient, which she received from President Barack Obama in 2014. We are so thrilled that she's made time to speak with us today. So Krista, welcome to Health Gig. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you. We know that you're not someone who's associated with the mindfulness movement per se, and yet we can't think of anyone who's more mindful about the words they choose and mm-hmm. how they engage with people in conversation and relationship than you. Mm-hmm. So we'd Thank like you. to start by talking with you about our words and language. When did you realize that the words we choose matter as much as they do? Sometimes people say to me, oh, you must have grown up in a family of great listeners <laughs> and people who chose their words carefully. But, you know, in human life, it works two ways. Either you grow up having that modeled or you grow up in the absence of it. And so you appreciate it all the more. I'm that second example. I just I didn't grow up in a time or place or family that chose words carefully. And mm-hmm. I discovered it kind of out in the big wide world. Well, first of all, I discovered it in books, then I discovered it through learning, and I discovered it in travel, something of my passion for the power of words and for the power of beautiful, careful words is the passion of a convert. (laughs) Why do you feel the words we choose are so important? We rarely pause to take in the power that we possess kind of moment to moment, hour to hour, as we move through our day. And how easy it is for us to, you know, we'll use this language to make someone's day or break someone's day Mm. with the words we use. We possess that in every moment. Words are powerful, powerful things. I also think, you know, I think questions are such a mighty form of words. And having noticed that, I don't always use my words as carefully as I should, right? Because it is so ordinary, It's actually quite a discipline to take this seriously moment to moment, but it's really a good way to live. I think that we so underappreciate and undervalue this. And, you know, actually, culturally, we just throw around damaging language Mm -hmm. and we get used to it and we get so coarsened. I think if you had to make the case that words matter and have power, it would be quite easy to make that case in a negative sense in terms of our civic life in the last few years. Yeah, because unfortunately in our society right now, it seems that the most hostile and destructive voices are the ones that are getting the most attention. In response to this, you've created the Civil Conversations Project. Is that how this was born? 
The Civil Conversations Project was something that we kind of named after the fact. We realized that there was something we'd set in motion and we wanted to keep building on. And it actually started with my interview in 2010, which aired in 2011 with Elizabeth Alexander, the poet. I had taped that interview with her in the election season of 2010, which was a very toxic, there was a lot of vitriolic language in that election. And when I think back to that time, we were all still really shocked by the vitriol. And then right after the turn of that year in 2011, um, and, you know, I can't even honestly remember who the actors were, who the candidates were, but, you know, it was, again, it was all around, it was on every side of the political spectrum, and it was bad for us. And we still felt that so strongly. And then there was the shooting of Representative Gabrielle Giffords right mm-hmm. after the turn of that year in 2011. You know, it was outside a political event at a supermarket. And across this political spectrum at that time, left to right, you had politicians, you had leaders really standing up and saying explicitly how we are treating each other, how we are speaking to and about each other is demeaning us. There was an awareness of that. And actually... Although I'd interviewed Elizabeth Alexander before those events, it was already up on the satellite when that started to unfold. And that's precisely what she talked about, that we need fresh language to approach each other, to get interested in each other again. And that did really set me off. I mean, really, the Civil Conversations Project is just a body of work, and we keep building it, you know, shows that we add to the Civil Conversations Mm. Project archive. If I think the On Being Project is about the questions of what it means to be human and how we want to live, the Civil Conversations Project just reflects that much more pointedly on the other question of who we will be to each other and how that now is completely inextricable from the question of what it means to be human in this century. I really think so. You've talked about grounding virtues to help people who might hold different opinions from each other, to help them sort of engage with each other in a more civilized way. The grounding virtues, that's kind of interesting because it was like they emerged. We didn't kind of come up with what the grounding virtues were, but at some point a few years ago, we started describing what we could see that had emerged that were these ways of being. I think that our Civil Conversations Project and the Better Conversations Guide, which is where we started talking about the grounding virtues, but now we see them as bigger than that. You know, there's a lot of good work that goes on about forms and structured experiences. And, you know, there's so many great projects and guidebooks and facilitation. And our work is kind of about asking the question that's almost pre-work to that. It's the question of, who do I want to be? How do I want to conduct myself right mm-hmm. in that room, in a space, in the hard conversations, in the broken spaces? The power that I have to turn up conducting myself and also in doing that, trying to bring forth the best in others. And that includes bringing my best words and my best questions So one of the virtues is words that matter. Mm -hmm. And that's also about understanding the humanity behind the words of the other person and also listening for that. It's generous listening, which is never in gotcha mode. The generous listener is asking generous, inviting questions that invite somebody else and make it reasonable for them, Mm -hmm. which wouldn't be in many of our public spaces, to be revealing, to be vulnerable to bring their questions as well as their answers and their convictions. We don't do that in our public spaces. Humility 
is one of the grounding virtues, and, and I really see that in a spiritual context. We've done a disservice to that word culturally, and certainly for me, it was not a very compelling word for most of my life. I think for women, it could be a difficult word, right? I mean, and you know, I think to be humble is to be ineffectual. But what I've come to understand from a spiritual standpoint is that humility is really not about debasing yourself. It's not about making yourself small. It's about wanting the other person to be big Mm, and figuring out how you can create conditions, whether that is a hospitable space or the words you use Mm. or the invitation you extend. Does humility include not having to be right and not having to be the one to get the credit? Yeah. And I think humility is also about being able to own what you don't know or what Mm. your questions are about whatever the position or the dispute is that has set you at odds with this other person. Oh, adventurous civility (laughs) is one of the other grounding virtues, because I think civility is something we can't give up on, even though it's become a fraught concept. Has it ever? Uh, But we can't give up on that. And it's not the whole toolkit. It's not the only thing we need. We also need to know how to fight and advocate and be passionate. I always like to add adjectives to civility, like muscular civility, (laughs) adventure civility. Civility is an adventure in this century, even if we weren't so fractured, right? Even if we weren't as divided as we are, we live with this unparalleled proximity and interdependence with different others. I mean, new in the history of our species. Plus, we're facing all these great big open civilizational challenges and changes from the definition of marriage or gender or family to what is happening to the natural world, to the weather changing, if you want to put it in the most benign terms, to having to kind of reinvent how democracy works and how an economy works with our technologies in our globalized world. We were already, and this is the challenge, we have to figure out how to meet each other as human beings holding our questions as opposed to duking it out with our answers or taking a vote, which we could do in some simpler circumstances and move on. We were going to have to learn how to live together with a lot of really raw, open questions and challenges in our midst and with our differences intact, yet figure out what common life can look like and what shared life can look like and how If we can't resolve these problems and these questions right now, how we can, you know, Reiner Maria Rilke is my great poet laureate, you know, how we can live the questions together that we can't yet answer together now. And that to me is what adventurous civility is going to mean. What about hospitality? To me, it all comes down to hospitality. Mm -hmm. I mean, hospitality is a core value of my work. I think hospitality can manifest in everything we do. I mean, I try to create a hospitable media space. I spent some time earlier this year in Silicon Valley. Ended up talking a lot about hospitality. I didn't expect that. You know, I was in conversation with people who are creating these technologies, which are actually places where we are spending a lot of our lives and doing things human beings have always done, like learn and fall in love and (laughs) create community. And we're doing them in these virtual spaces. But for all the things that the internet was designed for, it wasn't actually designed for us to rise to our best selves. It was designed more like a vacant lot where you like open the gate and say, everybody come in and anything can happen and anything does happen. And if you have no structure, no social intentionality in a space, 
the bullies always have an outsized presence. We know this. So I started to think of hospitality as a social technology. You find it in every culture, and it has so much intricacy across different cultures. And really what it is, in one sense, is a social technology for inviting other people to bring their best selves into the room. It's very sophisticated, and it's so much more than just opening up your house, right? There are all these layers that you go through that humanize and that soften and that open possibility and that create conditions for people to be kind and to enjoy themselves Mm -hmm. and to get to know somebody new. And it's pleasurable, even while those really important things are happening. To become more mindful in speaking with others across our differences, you do, and you just talked about that, you identify needing to prepare the space and and frame our guiding intention before the conversation begins. Can you talk about this? What's that mean to prepare and frame? You know, what do you mean? Yeah. You know, the other thing I like about speaking in terms of virtues is that, in fact, all of us practice these things in our daily lives, in our circles of intimacy, by which I mean close family, extended family, Mm -hmm. new friends, old friends, colleagues, neighbors. We practice adventurous civility around the Thanksgiving dinner table, right? right? We practice in hospitality. If you think about when you've practiced that meaningfully, it's so much more than extending an invitation, It's about preparing a space that is going to be inviting, that is going to be pleasurable, that is going to help people relax, Mm -hmm. that is going to get them off their guard, that is going to open them up, that will honor them, Mm -hmm. even just honor their physical needs for something to drink and something to eat and a place to sit and feel welcome. And we know that there's value in that. The way we prepare the space is going to be the totality of the experience for us as well as for them. I just think we can extend that in so many other ways. I mean, I try to create a hospitable space when I set out to interview somebody. And that has to do in part with my preparation. Like I prepare an incredible amount for an interview. Yes, of course, so that it will be a good interview. But really, the most immediate effect of that, all that work I do to really have a sense of who someone is and how they think and to be honoring of that, you know, that my being informed is also a way to honor that. It does affect the conversation from the very outset in this way. We meet each other all the time at an animal level. We have internalized so many things about another person before any words are spoken or in the first few sentences. And we all know the difference between the experience of you meet somebody and you know you're going to have to defend yourself mm-hmm. or explain yourself or be on guard. You know, there's this cascade of effects that has in terms of not just what you say, but how you hold yourself and how you're taking in what they say. And we've all had the experience. And this is the experience I try to have with my conversations is that when you're with somebody and you know within seconds or minutes, oh, they get me. You just relax in your body. Then the fullness of your story, so much more of that will be accessible in that encounter. It's so true, because if you begin with judgment, everybody's got their guard up. So how do we suspend our judgment and really listen to someone? I mean, it's a complicated question. And there are all kinds of complicated answers. There are also, I think, some simple ways to kind of move into this space. And also to be really mindful of the fact that we have kind of trained ourselves in recent years to do the opposite. To walk in putting other people in boxes with our arguments loaded, we've kind of trained ourselves to be 
ready to think that once we get a certain idea of what kind of identity or if they believe this one thing or if they voted this one way, that we know everything about them. Right, right. <laughs> and we all walk around like that. So I think curiosity is a virtue. But again, at this animal level, you can't fake curiosity. I mean, you can. I can come into the room pretending to be curious or I can <laughs> say, well, I want to be in this conversation, so I'm going to act curious. But that actually will not do it. If I'm faking curiosity, you're going to know it. You're going to feel it if you don't hear it in the words I say. You will be appropriately guarded with me. So one thing I say is I think we have to figure out how to relearn what actual curiosity feels like. And it's not actually that instinctive right now. One kind of litmus test to know if you're truly curious is, do I want this person to surprise me? Am I really ready, willing, mm -hmm. <laughs> and perhaps excited about the idea that they might surprise me, that mm -hmm. that whole list of things I think about them on the basis of how they voted or where they live or what the color of their skin is or whatever that is. Am I ready to have that neat, clean way I think they work and where they fit all jumbled up? Right. And if you are, you know, that is such a great adventure, right? Mm -hmm. And it's so mm -hmm. true because a lot of times you're just dead wrong. You know, we're learning so much that's really so helpful in this. We're learning that our brains are trying to help us and be our friends. They create categories for us. Because otherwise, reality is overwhelming. The complexity of it is overwhelming. So they do this thing where they create categories that help us order things so we kind of find our way and it feels like it makes sense. But one of the things they do is that when we see a group of the other, whatever that other is, we imagine it to be very simple. We imagine everybody in that group to be very much alike. And probably we associate everybody in that group with the most offensive exemplar of that group that we've encountered, right? So they're all like that. But what's so ironic is that we know in our own group, again, whatever that group is, that it's just, if we're lucky, we have a couple of soulmates. But the people we love the most, the people we know the best, the people who know us the best, it is a spectrum, right? Mm -hmm. It's people whose sentences we complete, maybe one or two of those. But it's not about likeness. It's not about always agreeing. It's not actually always about feeling loving towards them. It's about small acts. It's about being present. It's about staying in relationship and figuring out how to stay in relationship without necessarily likeness or agreement or all the feelings all the time. So one of the things that I'm just thinking about so much these days is how much intelligence we possess in our private lives and in our lives at work and family that we could apply to civic life if we're ready to get really honest about how messy it is actually in our lives of love. That's a really big thought. Because, you know, one of the things we know to do with people we care about and we choose to care about, even when they're making us crazy, we decide sometimes what we're not going to talk about or we're not going to talk about that now because it will be unproductive. Back to preparation, back to thoughtfulness, you care about saying it in a way and at a time that it can be heard. But we don't do that in public. We kind of go around calling each other stupid all the time, which we all know, again, in our actual lives of relationship is the actual absolute last way to change anything or anyone. What really stands out about our public discourse today or in just in general is anger and rage. Yeah. Um, you see anger as an inability to cope with pain. Can you speak about that? I see that very often anger in public 
is pain and fear that can't show itself in public. And in fact, we don't make room for pain and fear in our public life, but we do give all kinds of attention to anger. Do you remember the movie Dead Men Walking? You remember Sister yes. Helen Prejean? Oh, yes. Ago? We yeah. heard her speak. I remember something yeah. she said that really impressed me. This was years and years ago. She said, you know, anger is a moral response. So, like, I don't want to say that anger doesn't matter. Sometimes it's the only moral response. And yet there's always still that choice of what do we do with it? And do we let that anger define us? And do we lead with that anger? So sometimes anger is a moral response. I mean, a lot of the anger that's playing itself out in our complicated situations right now is because it's the only way for what at root is fear and pain. That's the Mm -hmm. only way it has to be powerful, to sound powerful. It still means that we never actually addressing what needs to be addressed, right? How do we overcome that fear? I think part of the answer to that is that we have to start addressing the fear as fear rather than the symptom of anger because anger just ends up being fights, right? It just ends up sparking more fights. There are so many reasonable reasons for human beings to be fearful right now, you know, (laughs) sadly. I mean, there's a lot of fear all around on every side of our political spectrum. This is also just a time of incredible kind of tectonic shifts in the structures and institutions that came out of the 20th century that don't make sense in the 21st century. And in that kind of change, you have a lot of people where the ground beneath their feet is shifting and the ground beneath what they imagined and expected for their children's future is shifting. That's a trauma, right? Mm-hmm. But we let that get channeled into, you know, partisan politics and fights over issues. And we don't actually honor and address that fear and that pain and meet that. And I don't know how we get to that point, but I think that's the only thing that can not just move it forward, but shift us into a new key of how we approach each other. Your efforts to heal our fractured world seem to be driven by a fundamental belief that despite our differences, we're all interconnected. Can you speak about our interconnectedness Mm -hmm. and how you've encountered it in your work? I think one of the wisest people I heard talk about this was John A. Powell, who's a legal scholar, and he's really been on the front line of a lot of our racial divides. He said, you know, We are in relationship with the people in our community from whom we feel disconnected and with whom we are at odds. It can be a bad relationship or a good relationship, but we are in relationship. And so part of the big tectonic shift we need to make as a culture, if we are going to come out of this century more whole and more healed, is that we don't actually have to create the interconnectedness. The interconnectedness is there. It's so interesting to me how knowledge catches up with us. And one of the things I see right now is that coming out of the 20th century, we had these habits of kind of dividing the world up in all kinds of ways, dividing ourselves up. I mean, not just dividing us from other people, but the way medicine divided our bodies into parts, right? (laughs) That like somebody is the expert in your eyes and somebody else is the expert in your gut and somebody else is the expert in your brain and somebody else does your teeth and your heart and your skin. And in fact, what we keep learning, the more sophisticated we get, is that it's a whole organism. And in fact, that the natural world The ground of our being doesn't function in silos or parts. It functions as an ecosystem, that everything is interrelated and everything is an interplay. 
And that's true of us, too. And it's true of us and the people who live on the other side of our city who we do not know and do not know how to know. And it's true of us and the people who are on the other side of our political spectrum who we do not know and do not know how to know. Our vulnerability is interconnected. The possibility of our flourishing is interconnected. And that is the reality. But it's up to us to create the structures for that to show and to make sense and to be working for us rather than against us. To your question a minute ago also, we could feel so despairing, right, in this conversation. How do we get from A to B? But my experience is that people are getting from A to B, but it's happening at the ground level. It's happening in communities. It's happening in neighborhoods. It's happening in workplaces. Small groups of people with intention, mindfully taking those structures that have been given that don't make sense, that keep us separate, and innovating new realities. But we are in this moment where that is the challenge. It's not going to come down from the top. It's not going to be designed in Washington, D.C. and then sent out into all 50 states. It's going to start in cities. It's going to start in community rec centers and in interfaith organizations. I mean, that's where it's happening. And I bet you see that, too. It is true social innovation that's happening. Something else that seems to animate your work is love. Love's not a topic we're necessarily comfortable talking about in public, and yet it seems critical that we begin to acknowledge and talk about it if we're going to change the self-destructive path that we're on as a civilization. What are your thoughts about love in the public sphere, what we've heard you call public love? We use the word love in politics or in public life sometimes as kind of a balm for crisis, but not as a muscular way beyond it. Social reformers and spiritual geniuses have always called us to love. The civil rights leaders will say what they did was first and foremost an act of love. We actually know, again, in our lives, which is reality, that love is the most reliable muscle of human transformation. And yet we don't apply this knowledge to our life together. I guess I can see how that evolved. We thought we were going to be so civilized by now, and we were going to bracket out the need for this messy, complicated, emotional thing. But here we are in the early 21st century. We have had to take love's opposite with the utmost seriousness. We are creating legal categories around hate. We are naming and calling out hate as a factor in shared life. This creates an opening, but it also just creates an imperative for us to take love as seriously, because it is, in fact, the only thing big enough. You know, I'm not talking about love as a Subaru, Right. right. <laughs> which is, which is, Although just, I do love my Subaru. <laughs> I know. Okay, fine. And I get very moved by that commercial and I very, am mad yeah. at myself. But right. So we've watered this word down and it's the love song and it's the love movie and it's all mm-hmm. falling in love, falling out of love. And love is so much bigger. Right. Again, it, love is friendship and love, the love we have for our children and the complicated, complicated kinds of love that, you know, across our lifespan. It amuses me, honestly, that I think if you talked about using love in the political sphere or in the public sphere, the criticism would be, oh, that's so soft. It's not serious enough or it's not hard enough to meet the challenges of our time. Well, like in our in life, again, it's the hardest thing, right? Mm-hmm. There's nothing soft about it most of the time. 
it's about so much more than feelings, right? It's really about what we do, and it's what we get up every day and keep doing. This is the ultimate example of can we take really seriously the intelligence we possess in our daily lives, each and every one of us, and start figuring out how to translate that into our shared life. So, Krista, your attitude genuinely seems to be that we're in this together, and the only way we're going to get to a better place is together. And what that place will look like will be determined by each and every one of us participating in this big grand experiment together. So can you talk a little bit more about this spirit of co-discovery and co-creating that you engage in with people? For me, that's just something that's built, you know? I mean, I didn't start out honestly thinking too much about that. It was like this revelation as year after year kind of creating this conversation and then constantly seeing how all these conversations are constantly echoing with each other and the world gets smaller. You start to see these interconnections. One thing that people have asked me from the beginning is, you know, what do all these people you interview have in common? And honestly, that's not an interesting question to me. It's not ever something I'm looking for. I'm interested in particularity. Like I'm interested in people speaking their language and speaking their truth and going deep and explaining how they got that way and how they see it and what their questions are. You know, I'm not interested in pursuing how are you like this and like that. But what I found that's very mysterious and exciting is that if you do get curious about people's particularity and all these strange and amazing, you know, this amazing range of ways we become who we are and what we believe and what we know and what we don't know and how we learn or how so much of growing is about learning what we don't know. And that you talk to people in that spirit and you walk through the world with those questions and then you start understanding at this very deep level those echoes. That's been the thing that's revealed itself to me and the great adventure. I do interview a lot of scientists and that's really played into this too because what we're learning about ourselves, about our brains and our bodies and how we struggle so much I mean, isn't it just crazy? Really, honestly, the work of a lifetime is to be more and more yourself. Mm-hmm. That's the hardest thing, right? It's ironic. It's ironic. And then, you know, at any given moment, what we think is so much less logical than in fact it is. And that we're so much more complicated than we in fact realize that we, that we have this in common. But also in this same period, how we are gaining an understanding of what true vitality means in terms of life on this planet and that it is ecosystems, its vulnerability and its flourishing that are interwoven and interconnected and in interplay. We've organized around parts and we haven't organized around the whole. And we didn't understand that this whole is so interconnected and so interactive. When I look out at the world right now, as I go through the world and I meet the people I meet and do the things I do, everywhere I go, I see this new reality emerging. I see these people, this generative story of our time that is in such contrast to the terrible things that are in the newspaper today and the terrible things that trended on Twitter 20 minutes ago. And, you know, that's just a partial story. And the full story of us is beautiful and it's strange and surprising It's full of courage and it's full of creativity. I think one of the things you're identifying that my kind of emphasis on on together, life together and this interconnection is because I still think that because we haven't organized around that, we haven't even seen the world that way, we haven't seen ourselves in terms of wholeness. My calling is creating this connective tissue there in these spaces where we're separated and shouldn't be and can't be. 
creating connective tissue so that places where we're learning, that we're learning together, that our learning gets interconnected, that there's cross-pollination. So many of the people who are really doing the courageous, good, beautiful work of healing wherever they live, they feel very alone. What they're doing is in such contrast to what is coming down to them as what is the story of our time, what's happening in the world that really matters. But they're not alone. I know that they're part of this large map, but we still have to create that connective tissue so that Mm -hmm. that narrative experiences itself as a landscape and not just a series of isolated individuals. I think that I talk this way because I see the world this way, but I also see that this is what we have to help become real. I guess that's the way that we could possibly heal our fractured world. Yeah. Our world does not want to be fractured, right? We Mm -hmm. do not want to be fractured, but we have to bit by bit, five people at a time, 500 people at a time, you know, we have to like show what is this other possibility and how does that look and how do we get there? And then we have to teach each other, how did we get to this? What are the obstacles? Because, you know, we are human beings and so there are always obstacles. We are complicated, but we can live with that. It's the very aggravating thing about us that we continue to add complexity even when things get better. But the other mysterious thing is that as we meet complexity, as we meet yet another obstacle, as we discover our shadow side, that's also when we grow. Mm -hmm. So it's this constant contradictory process. We love to ask all of our guests if they had one book they would recommend everyone read, what would it be? I actually think it would be Rilke's Book of Hours, Love Poems to God, which is Rainer Maria Rilke's poetry translated by Joanna Macy and Anita Barrows, who are a Buddhist teacher and a psychotherapist. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful rendering of Rilke's language. And his poetry, and I think it is spiritual in the most expansive 21st century sense of that word. You know, Rilke was writing at the turn of the last century. To be turn-of-century people is always a kind of a huge thing. A hundred years ago was also having just come through one world war and heading into another world war and a holocaust. These are times of rupture and upheaval, the world changing. I experienced that in Rilke's poetry. There's a sense that I think we all feel that the lives we are leading, on the one hand, It's individual and personal. And on the other hand, there are civilizational things at stake in the most ordinary decisions we make and the way we craft our lives. And that is terrible and beautiful and daunting and amazing. And I think that the more that we accompany each other in that and really throw ourselves at that and also can be there for each other on the days that it's just too hard to carry that, days, weeks, years that it's too hard to carry that, that's, I think, our best route to really rising to our best selves and and actually evolving as a species in generative ways. And so really meeting these huge challenges that are given to us. We would love to leave with your favorite quote. I mean, I love live the questions, you know, Mm. that's real good to live the questions as though they were locked rooms or books written in a very foreign language, you know, live the questions now because you could not live your way into the answers. Perhaps one day without even knowing it, you will live your way into the answers. Let's hope so. That's, that's <laughs> beautiful. So. Krista, thank you. Oh, my goodness. We've, thank you. We've loved having you. You're so thoughtful. and So many more questions. <laughs> You're just oh, amazing. It's fun. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. 
I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. <laughs>